HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Okay, now we got it going on here, homie. Um, yes, this is uh, Monday, and this is the Heritage Radio Network, and this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're going to be talking about ag gag laws in North Carolina, but first, we are going to move to my favorite part of the program right now, which is my new feature called Aches and Pains. And oh, my aches and pains, and they extend way beyond my creaky knees, my arthritic ankles, and my almost toasted shoulder. Yes, the joys of getting older. But my friends, there are other aches and pains out there. And here is my list for this week. Um, Here's my major pain. A major pain this week was Senator Mike Lee, a Republican who guessed it, uh, from Utah, is uh, single-handedly holding up the federal funding in disaster relief for Flint, Michigan. And what are his reasons? Well, I'm going to tell you. First, he says, procedure has not been properly followed in terms of how they vote the funding. So even though this is a an emergency, we still have to follow the proper procedure, which could take you know months to to follow. This is a state matter, is his other reasoning. Why should the federal government be paying for a state problem? Well, because the state probably doesn't have the money and they certainly aren't allocating the funds as fast as they need to be. And last of all, he objects to the use of stimulus funds being repurposed for infrastructure. Senator Mike Lee from Utah, remember that name. And when he comes up for the vote, remember this moment. Um, Here's my other pain. This is a minor pain, not so bad, but still something that bugs me from time to time. I was watching TV the other night. Jenny Craig ad comes on. And it dawned on me as I watched it that most weight loss ads nearly, in fact, I'd say without exception, feature a woman as the person who has, quote, taken a moment to change her life. And that's that's what they call, you know, when you decide to go on the Jenny Craig program, you've changed, you're going to change your life. Anyway, and she is depicted on the advertisement with her doting husband and her young son. And they're so happy that wifey has decided to come to her senses and get hot again. Jesus. I noticed that the same weight loss programs never, ever, ever show a man as the protagonist. And yet... Men are just as fat as women, if not more so. But the message is that the only person who needs to look, quote, attractive is women. It doesn't matter if the man is a disgusting, bloated toad who hasn't had eye contact with his penis in decades. 
who is writing this copy? I want to know. There's one of my pains. Okay. And lastly, here's my major ache. Aches are the really big problems, the pains we can deal with. The USDA has filed a rule to ban food stamp recruitment. This was from the... um, the Ag Insider, which is published by the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which is a wonderful source of information about all things food and ag. Um, the Federal Register is to publish a proposed rule today that would bar the use of federal funds to encourage people to apply for food stamps. Required by the 2014 law, the regulation also would prohibit any entity that receives money through the 2008 Food and Nutrition Act from paying, quote, any person engaged in outreach or recruitment activities based on the number of individuals who apply to receive benefits. I'm not even sure I understand that. Or to cover the administrative costs of recruitment programs or TV, radio or billboard advertisements that promote food stamps. In other words, let's keep it a secret from people who might actually need food assistance because, God forbid, we should spend federal funds on letting people know that there is help out there. Um, But, you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to let you know about it because we want to get most of you poor sad sacks off of those welfare rolls and out of the food stamp program because God knows you're one of those takers. Okay, that's the end of my rant about uh, aches and pains. And now, Dave, we can play a short sponsor drop, and then we'll come right back with Daisy Freund and Robert Hensley from the ASPCA. We're going to be talking about an update on ag-gag laws around the country, but in specifically uh, what the ASPCA is engaged in in North Carolina. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. My guests today are Daisy Freund and Robert Hensley. They are both uh, with the ASPCA. Daisy is the director of the ASPCA's Farm Animal Welfare Team. And in her role, Daisy develops and implements education and advocacy campaigns that improve conditions on industrial farms and drive transparency in animal agriculture so that consumers can make informed choices. Daisy joined the ASPCA in 2012, bringing to the job a diversity of experience in food systems and communications, including farming, restaurant management, public relations, and journalism. And it's true. Daisy has a CV that puts most people three times her age to shame. Just saying. Um, Our other guest is, um, yes, I always feel incredibly inadequate around Daisy, but I love her anyway. Um, My other guest is Robert Hensley, who I don't know, but Robert serves as the Legal Advocacy Senior Counsel for the ASPCA, where his practice is focused on affirmative civil litigation, legislative counsel work, and, quote, second chair legal assistance to prosecutors and investigators in animal cruelty cases around the country. Robert also serves as a board member and volunteer for the Coalition to Unchained Dogs, based in his hometown of Durham, North Carolina. So welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Hi, Katie. Hi, Daisy. I miss you. It's been a long time since I've seen you. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah we got a pleasure. We got to fix that. We got to fix that. So, um, Daisy, why don't we let you kick it off here? What is the story on this so-called? I love that they call it an, that. You guys are calling it an anti-sunshine law instead of ag gag. What? I mean, just 
curiosity prompted me to say what caused, caused the change in nomenclature there. You know, it's it's really it means the same thing. We're not letting the sunshine on right. the abuses going on in factory farms. Um, where you know, it's it's a sort of, sort of a form of gag um, yeah. by agriculture. Same, same, but. Just, you know, to back it up so everybody knows what's going on here, this is part of a trend. So, you know, whistleblowers, um, often through investigations, play this vital role in our food system, exposing animal abuse or food safety violations Mm -hmm. or unsafe working conditions or environmental damage. You know, the list goes on. And by now, most people have probably seen these videos, and they're pretty horrendous that come out of these farms. But it's even more horrifying to think of a world where those abuses go unseen. Um, but instead of addressing the abuses being documented, agribusiness um, took this new tack a few years ago of focusing on trying to hide them from the American people by lobbying for anti-whistleblower or what we call ag-gag bills. Um, and they, they've come about in a variety of different forms. Um, some of them have made video recording or photos illegal on ag facilities. Some of them have made it illegal to represent oneself on an application to work at a farm. Right. Others have required, you know, people who document abuses to turn them over very quickly, which effectively prevents, um, you know, making a case against an abuser. Um, and, and ultimately, eight state bills have become law, <clears throat> nine if you count one in Wyoming. It was sort of a variation on that theme. Um, one was overturned this past summer. Right. Two others are being challenged. And um, I'll actually let uh, Robert, you know, give us the backstory here on North Carolina. Well, before you before you oh, go sure. to that, I just want well, Robert, you'll tell us about the passage, the veto, the overriding veto. But I want to I want to just say one thing about the the name of this law from the meat industry side. They call it a farm protection bill. I just want to make that because I think it is just the most ironic thing in the world. But they think of it as farm protection. Meanwhile, we're thinking of it as whistleblowing. So anyway, Robert, how about it? Tell us what were the stages of, you know, this vote, this um, this law passed and then the governor vetoed it. And then it was his veto was overridden. What What's going on there? What are the grounds that led you to, you know, adopt a suit against this? Well, I, I tell you, there's a there's a very interesting backstory. And in fact, it it starts about 20 years ago. Cool. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'll 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 fill you in on that. Oh, please do. Um, so uh, you, you you may remember in the mid 90s, uh, ABC had a show called Primetime Live, mm-hmm. and uh, at one point they sent in a couple of reporters uh, to do an undercover investigation of food line supermarkets in South Carolina and North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, they recorded some uh, unwholesome food handling practices, we might say, uh, Mm -hmm. including uh, repackaging out-of-date meat Mm -hmm. and then reselling it. Uh, They even uh, would bleach meat to remove the smell of it when it it became rank. And after that uh, broadcast, uh, Foodline, I guess not unexpectedly, sued ABC. Uh, they said that the way they gathered their information constituted fraud, uh, breach of a duty of loyalty, trespass, and unfair trade practices. Now, interestingly, <laughs> they did not sue them for defamation. Uh, mm-hmm. They couldn't really do that because what was reported was true. And uh, right. in order to, to bring a defamation claim, you know, the, uh, what the person says needs to not be true. That's right. Uh, uh, and... Uh, so there was an interesting outcome to outcome to this to this case. The the, the court dismissed the, the fraud claim 
saying that, yes, it's true, these reporters said, um, not told the truth on their applications, but there really weren't any damages that Foodline could show from that. I mean, they didn't say the reporters didn't actually do their jobs while they were working there. Um, but ultimately, Foodline was uh, uh, was successful with, with their uh, breach of duty of loyalty claim and their trespass claim, but they were awarded a total of $2 in nominal damages. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but and the reason was because they they could not show that uh, that what the reporters had done was the proximate or legal cause of any of the damages that they that they had suffered. Um, uh, it's it's true there was a there was a uh, the court recognized a sort of technical trespass, but uh, because the the employees were did exceed their authority to 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 do what they did on the on on the property um but again that's actually the sort of thing that occurs anytime you uh you know take a walk across your neighbor's yard you're you're technically trespassing there but there's not going to be any damages um uh and uh, so uh, this law um which was uh introduced uh last year uh, I think flows directly out of that case. It's an attempt to to sort of uh, rewrite that opinion uh-huh. um, and and provide for significant damages uh, when when uh, things happen uh, very similar to what happened in the Zulu case. And the court said you get you get two dollars. Um, uh, <laughs> but but basically, if the you know under those same circumstances now, um, Foodline would have been able to obtain. Uh, Five thousand dollars in exemplary damages uh, for each day that the employees had had uh, had, had violated uh, had uh, breached their duty of loyalty and trespassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, their attorney's fees, which is probably the most uh, attractive thing about about the law, and and and, right. and the thing that it acts as I think the biggest deterrent because certainly attorney's fees can be extremely expensive uh, uh, in in litigation. Um, so, um, let me just tell you kind of specifically what the what the what the law says. The 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 uh, um, the, the, the provision that we're most interested in uh, says uh, that that um, this is this is the situation in which uh, an employee would incur liability. An employee who intentionally enters the non-public areas of an employer's premises for a reason other than a bona fide intent of seeking or holding employment or doing business with the employer and thereafter without authorization records images or sound occurring within an employer's premises and uses the recording to breach the person's duty of loyalty to the employer so there's there's a whole lot in there but but there are kind of three main things one is there's got to be a recording it's got to be in a non-public area but uh-huh. most important, most importantly, for you know the, the problem with the law is uh, that um, liability accrues when that recording is used, which means it's shared, published, um, uh, something like that, right. and used in a way that breaches uh, their duty of loyalty to to the employer. So um, this makes it. Uh, Problematic under the First Amendment because you know we already have laws that that uh, that criminalize or prohibit trespassing. You know we already have uh, laws that prohibit slander and defamation. Um, uh, but 
this law is uh, is you know going going past that and focusing directly on the speech, so that the the violation occurs only when the the recording is used. So you could have you know employee who makes who makes a recording in an area of uh, the business that he or she is not authorized to be in, but mm-hmm. That isn't prohibited by the law. It's only when they share that reporting with some way with someone in a way that the employer disagrees with. Mm-hmm. That's that's also very important that you have a have a violation. And uh, then it also has an implication. I'm sorry. It also has an implication for anybody who actually takes that information and is the sharing person. So, in other words, not only is the person who took the video liable, but then a news organization or a reporter or some other organization that publicizes that information also becomes liable. Isn't that right? It's it's possible there there is liability that's created for someone who uh, directs, assists, compensates, or induces another person to to violate that section. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether that would flow to to someone who wasn't involved up front, it's it's not clear. But uh, you know, assist or compensates, it's you know, it's it's possible that um, that liability could uh, uh, could attach to, to folks who. Who, uh, who share the information? It's not. It's not entirely clear, but I, I can't rule it out. Um, yeah, I mean, I read that whole brief. Believe it or not, that's how crazy I am. Sixty-eight pages of absolute garbling. <laughs> I don't know how you guys do it. I really don't. Obviously, that's what they teach you in law school is an entirely new language or a new way of, of, of using English as a language. But anyway, I did read the whole thing, and um, yeah, it seemed like it would have a very what they kept calling in the brief a chilling effect on freedom of speech. Um, and so there were it was the first and Fourteenth Amendments I think that were evoked in this in the suit. Um, and then um, and then various parts of the North Carolina Constitution as well. But um, Daisy, what what is it about the anti sunshine law that applies specifically to the concerns of the, concerns of the ASPCA? Was there something specific happening in North Carolina that brought your organization's attention to this particular ag gag battle? Right. Well, wherever ag-gag bills have appeared, the ASPCA, with this amazing coalition of groups, has been um, fighting them. So when North Carolina introduced this bill, um, we really worked hard with uh, citizens in North Carolina, lots of local groups, local Mm -hmm. farming groups, um, to try to fight it. We had all these celebrities come out, actually, Martha Stewart and Kesha and Nikki Reed and Andy McDowell, and everybody got involved because it was just so offensive. Um, You know, you'll notice it doesn't actually specify even farms. So there's lots of implications for, oh, sure. you know, senior centers, elder abuse, um, child, child abuse, care. Of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Groups like AARP of North Carolina got involved at the time. Um, so we really, we lobbied, you know, against it. And, um, and one of the big reasons why this was particularly a scary bill and then scary that it became law is because North Carolina is one of the top pork and poultry producing states in this country. So it's number two in pork production, number two in turkey production, number three overall in poultry production nationally, um, which means that, you know, what is made in North Carolina does not stay in North Carolina. Sometimes we see, you know, these, these bills crop up on a state level and it's not always clear to everybody across the country why they're in danger, but they're in danger because they're probably eating something from North Carolina, you know, on a weekly, if not more often, basis. So that's really why. And the the ASPCA's work in general is um, trying to raise awareness of these inhumane conditions on large-scale farms. 
And with the way our food system works today, there's just not that information available freely. You know, we're not allowed on these farms. Um, they right. know that the public wouldn't like what they could, what they saw if they could get access. So these investigations are one of the only ways that we have insights into what's happening. So you know, the caging and crating of animals, mutilations without painkillers, really sickening conditions that's leading to this um, overuse of antibiotics. All these practices that. Mm. We are a part of the, you know, the movement to eliminate them, but without the evidence, um, you can't get that outcry. You can't get those policies to change. So, you know, it really in- impacts our work and, um, and obviously animals' lives. Absolutely. Um, but I, I want both of you to answer this, but one at a time, if you please. Um, I, in an article in Meeting Place, um, which, of course, is one of my favorite magazines, the suit was uh, the suit, the North Carolina suit that you guys are involved in was described in this way. Um, quote, a growing number of states have enacted similar laws, partly to counter the common tactic of animal activists misrepresenting themselves to gain employment at ag facilities and then videotape, emphasize mine, videotape and publicize alleged misconduct, such as animal abuse. I mean, this is how, um, you know, Meeting Place, which is one of the big trade publications for the meat industry, uh, characterizes these kinds of investigations. Um, Robert, actually, why don't you start with this? Because I am particularly curious about how they get away with calling it, quote, alleged misconduct, when it is so obviously misconduct. I mean, when you see somebody kicking or dragging an animal or otherwise abusing an animal in the context of a, you know, a farming operation, that's not, that's no longer alleged. That is on videotape for everyone to see. And it's, and it is misconduct, which the company will often then say, oh, we're going to, you know, investigate this to the fullest extent of the law. And those people will be eliminated if not, you know, thrown into the hellfires. I mean, how do they get away with calling it alleged misconduct in a publication? I don't understand. Well, I think I think that they can, they do it. They're speaking very broadly, so they're they're not talking about specific instances. And so they're probably thinking of it as you know, well, you know, not all of these instances have necessarily gone to court and been proven to have, mm-hmm. to have occurred. And so they're you know, and and I think that that uh, you know they they may also want to make the argument that well, some of the things that are seen on the video. Are 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 illegal, um, and therefore they yeah. shouldn't be considered misconduct. But uh, and so it's it's kind of a matter of, of interpretation. But you know, I, I would also want to point out that um, you know there are not any instances of which I'm aware that uh, that video has been uh, distorted or manipulated mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to sort of mislead the viewer as to what is actually happening there. So uh, I would agree. I think that, you know, the, even the average viewer can, uh, can look at these uh, videos and make up their own mind about whether this is misconduct or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Daisy, <clears throat> just to speak more broadly to sort of the farmers who, you know, obviously you, are, you know, are involved with working with a lot of farmers. Um <clears throat> You know, obviously, big places don't necessarily want videotapes coming in. But I mean, when they when they when a when a trade magazine like this calls calls something a videotape that shows what it shows as alleged misconduct, 
I, I feel like they're misleading farmers in a way to to sort of develop a more paranoid mindset towards uh, journalism or you know just the public in general. And, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that to the, how how farmers react to that kind of language from meeting place. Meanwhile, the actual you know viewing of these videotapes, which as Robert just pointed out, are, are frequently quite accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean, we we work with farmers um, very closely, and often right. when we're working in one of these states, we have local you know farming communities and farmers on board with us because it's pretty clear that the the bills themselves do not do wonders for agribusiness's image. They right. really make them look like they have a secret, um, and so they're they're generally you know there's nothing to hide if you're farming animals with their welfare in mind, but right. that's just not the case. So. You know, I I think yes, they are. Those words are used um, purposefully because they're really trying to play to the very human um, desire to believe that these videos are not true. We just don't want to believe that somebody could sadistically abuse an animal or that you know animals are sick and suffering on this scale um, for for food production it's really we, we hope it's not true um, and so it's it's pretty it's pretty calculated to kind of feed that mistrust but um, you know that this is the reality and, and we're so far from um, where we used to be with the sort of red barn and the rolling hills that um, with nobody really seeing inside these operations and each individual farmer probably doing their best you know to raise animals pretty well oh I think um, so Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's easy to sort of um, slip that, that message in and have people say, well, I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, as a farmer, I'm doing my best. And they often are, but they're under enormous pressure. The scale of these farms is almost unthinkable. You have tens of thousands of animals in one warehouse. And so often, yeah. you know, animals get neglected because they, they can't even be seen. They can't be found. The lights are kept dim. Um, you know, they're crammed in there. And it's not set up for individualized care. That's really something we We've lost in the in the industrial uh, version of farming. So yeah. this stuff happens, and you know we really tr- we work hard to bring that individualized care back in through the kind of you know certifications that we advocate for, um, and the kind of changes we want to see in, in agriculture. But that this is you know a product of our um, massive scaling up of the system. And then, you know, I will just say that I think, um, as Robert mentioned, some of what we see in these videos isn't illegal. So, um, you know, they can get away with saying some of this stuff, but they're really being tone deaf to split hairs like that. They're not recognizing that that's not the response the public really wants. The public wants to see justice served when these kinds of abuses are documented. They don't want to hear about, well, technically, because we've managed to get away with almost no regulation, you know, that's, that's perfectly legal to do that to an animal, but that's not the point. Um, And, you know, that's why Temple Grandin said ag gag laws are the dumbest thing ag has done, really. Yes, and I mean, I've actually talked a lot with other people who are on the industrial side of farming, and and, and many of them agree that the ag gag laws have had, uh, you know, if anything, a backlash 
um, in consumer opinion about how agriculture is performed in this country and that it has not been something that has, um, you know, and for a while there seemed like there was a bit of a hiatus to the countries, the, excuse me, to the states that were trying to pass this legislation. And then uh, and then as, I, as we see now with North Carolina, there's a real push forward again uh, to pass these laws. Um, Robert, I wanted to talk for a second with you about sort of the legal uh, things, because it looks like Wyoming is also facing a challenge to their ag-gag law. Um, and then last summer, the Idaho ag-gag law was struck down as unconstitutional. And I wondered if um, if all of the, you know, when, when people challenge the laws, are they all sort of based on First and Fourteenth Amendment issues? Or are there different circumstances in each one of these states that allows a suit to go forward? Uh, they are generally based on the same legal principles. Usually we're talking about about freedom of speech, mm-hmm. you know, equal protection, uh, particularly if if the if the law is targeting a a uh, you know a, a, a particular type of activity, say agriculture, um, uh, and uh, but but the you know the, the details of each of the laws uh, is is different. So the arguments may be similar, uh, the legal principles are similar, uh-huh. but you know the outcomes are not. Not guaranteed, you know, just because you succeed on one law, because uh, you know the, the laws are are different. I mean, it, one of the ways that the North Carolina law is actually quite different than the, say the Idaho law is that it uh, is a is a private enforcement scheme. So in Idaho, if you if you uh, videotape uh, or the law has now been struck down, but if if you were to videotape. Uh, on uh, the premises of an agricultural facility, and you were videotaping the facility's operations, then that would be a crime. Uh, the North Carolina law doesn't criminalize uh, the recording that we were talking about earlier, uh-huh. but it but it but it provides uh, a, a private right of action, so the employer can can sue the employee civilly uh, and seek damages. Uh, now that may seem to be maybe oh, okay that's a little bit better than making it a crime but actually it's it's it it still has the same chilling effect and right. uh and and it also makes the law a little bit more difficult to challenge in court um if you have a if you have a criminal law that you claim to be unconstitutional it's pretty easy to get into federal court uh because uh you have an you know you have a government actor on the other side who's got uh, enforcement authority or responsibility for that state law. Usually, uh-huh. it's the governor who's named as the defendant. But uh, in North Carolina, where uh, it's not a crime, uh, and you you uh, you would have employers who are suing employees, it makes it a little bit more difficult to identify a proper defendant because there's not uh, arguably there there may not be a a government actor uh, who has direct responsibility for in Forcing that law. I mean, I would say that uh, in, in North Carolina and a lot of states in general, the attorney general has an interest in, in the enforcement of, of laws generally. So you can make that argument, but but it's it's not as not as clear cut. Um, and in the in the North Carolina lawsuit, um, we we have named uh, uh, as one of the defendants the, the head of the UNC system because the law. Uh, also, it doesn't just apply to private sector employers. It also applies to public sector employers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, you know, the head of, of the UNC system or the head of state agencies, uh, you know, would uh, be able to enforce the law just like a private employer would. So, um, 
So uh, that's one of the ways that North Carolina law is, is different. Like I said, it makes it a little bit more difficult to get into court because it's harder to identify uh, a state actor who with direct enforcement authority, but uh, we feel we've been able to do that uh, with, so with our lawsuit. Do you see, is there a trend for many of these, you know, the states, eight or nine states that um, that uh, Daisy mentioned at the top of the show, um, that have enacted these kinds of, you know, ag-gag slash anti-sunshine laws? Um is there a trend for more states to enact more legislation like this, or do you see more states uh, rolling it back the way you know the Idaho people did last year, and yeah. um, and that you know you're hoping to do in North Carolina? Which which way is the wind blowing? I guess is the is the answer, is the question here. Well, I you know I think it's hard to say. I think a lot depends on the outcome of of uh, the legal challenges. Uh, I I think that the the victory in Idaho so far is is terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think that it it will make legislators think twice about going down that route. Um, I I think it will be uh, you know it, it was in my mind very important to challenge this law here in North Carolina because it because of the different approach. That it takes right. with the with with the civil liability as opposed to the to the criminal. You know, whenever whenever these laws are are struck down, you know, legislators think, well, um, that's probably not the way that we you know we don't want to enact a law like that and just uh, uh, to have it struck down by the courts. But you know, if a law succeeds in surviving a legal challenge, that could provide a blueprint for other states. So um, so uh, you know, I I think. People on both sides are, are, are watching closely to see see what what happens. I think a lot of different approaches have been tried in the past, uh, and a lot of them have been abandoned, shown you know not to be viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure folks will come up with with new ideas, and it'll be you know an <laughs> ongoing process. But I, you know, get hardening back to what Davy said earlier, I, you know, this, the whole approach is just so retrograde. I mean, we live in a society where everyone has. You know, a cell phone with a camera on it. Yeah. You know, we see we see constantly. You know, uh, which I think I think most of the public agrees are good things. Where you have citizens who are capturing you know misconduct. Uh, you know, whether it's by you know individuals or government actors that we would not we wouldn't otherwise have any you know knowledge of or, or proof of. You know, whether right. or not you know uh, didn't they, if they didn't have their cell phones and and were and making these videos and. Uh, uh, so I, I think it's you know society's just sort of past the point where where these these laws look look so ridiculous, uh, given the society that that we live in, where you know everyone has a cell phone and, and everyone has has a camera. Yeah, and everybody is sort of a little mini reporter whenever they need to be. Basically, I mean all of yeah. these, I mean yeah. all of the the uh, the Black Lives Matter video, you know, the videos of of police officers uh, brutalizing or killing unarmed people in the streets. That would we would never have known that without the ubiquity of the cell phone uh, video camera. I mean that that's just I don't think Apple or any of the others in, inventors of that ever envisioned <laughs> that it would and, have such I a think, profound yeah. effect on civil society. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> And it's, I think it's important to, to, to remember the importance of video. Uh, it's, you, you see these laws generally target you know, audio recordings or, or video recordings. And like I said, there, I'm not aware of any instances in which videos have been you know, manipulated to distort what's, what's going right. on. But you know, without the video, what you have is, you know, well, here's what I saw, which right. is 
you know, uh, so, you know, you take that, you know, for what it's worth, but it's very easy for someone to say, well, no, you know, that's not what happened, or you didn't understand what you were seeing, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, video is often the best form of evidence. Well, they, they know, say we a picture is worth a thousand words, that, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it just seems strange that, that, that lawmakers would want to, you know, exclude and suppress, you know, the best evidence of wrongdoing and say, oh, no, the only thing we're going to rely upon is just, you know, you know, the story that you can tell us. And, you know, when, when you know, everyone knows that video is much better evidence and be far more persuasive. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I often think that the legislators live in a kind of strange alt universe um, where, uh, you know, they, 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 I think it's sort of being drunk on power. I mean, it, it even goes back to sort of like, <clears throat> why, why do, you know, politicians shoot themselves in the foot like Elliot Spitzer or, or Anthony Weiner? You know, they think they're not going to get caught. They think that they live in some sort of different space where, you know, what they say is, is the, is the be all and end all and, you know, video evidence notwithstanding. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a very strange, I think something very weird happens to people when they achieve elected office. Um, and I think that's very true in the, in the case of legislation, legislative branch. Daisy, I, do you think the public is more or less concerned, uh, with agriculture, with, uh, you know, sort of animal welfare issues than they were just a few years ago? I feel like the, you know, there was a great sort of surge of, of these videos coming out and public outcry and then the American Meat Institute, you know, developed those those videos with Temple Grandin to show people how the slaughtering process really works. And, you know, like they made a great effort to kind of roll back the, the damning evidence of some of those videos, like the Hallmark Westlake video of the downer cows, right. you know, if you, and, and I feel like people got very head up about it. And, then, and now I feel like it doesn't really register as much as it did. Um, and yet the same practices are still probably happening just as frequently. What, how do you gauge the public interest? Yeah, I think interest is really high right now. And, you know, it comes in different waves and for different reasons. Certainly now there's, you know, there's more conversation about the content of our foods, whether it's GMO yeah. or, you know, the labels or organic than, than I really, than there ever has been. And um, three years ago, we, the ASPCA started talking about um, the treatment of broiler chickens. There really hadn't been any That's conversation right. about those birds. And they're nine out of 10 of the animals we raise for food, nine, almost nine billion every year. Yeah. And, and since then, we've seen um, a bunch of investigations. We've seen a number of, you know, really big, high-profile stories coming out about the chicken industry, a book, the meat racket. I'm sure you've oh, yeah. you know, well well aware. And so I, I think actually we're um, we're certainly seeing more conversation. It's being, um, you know, it's, it's not seen as much as a, a fringe issue. This kind of idea that of farm animal welfare, it's really coming into the mainstream. And mm-hmm. we've done, you know, surveys and 95 percent of Americans strongly agree or agree that animals raised for food um, deserve to be free from abuse and cruelty, and and 70% of consumers are willing to spend more, for example, on you know humanely raised chicken. So there's there's a willingness, there's a real value there. Um, yeah. I think the problem is that uh, as these companies come out with announcements, um, you know whether it's cage free or antibiotic free, there's a, unfortunately a sense that you know maybe that takes care of it. Um, and so what we try to do is continue to raise awareness that 
um, you know, there's still, there's no, really almost no federal laws governing how animals are treated on farm. Um, there's only, it's only in, at slaughter and in transport, and, uh, and mostly birds are left out of the, those uh, federal right. laws anyway. Um, and so, you know, this comes down to the choices that a company makes on how the, you know, they choose to raise those animals, and we really push for um, certification. Some of the certifications that are available on the market, like Certified Humane or Animal Welfare Approved or Global Animal Partnership, because right. in that case, you've got birth to death, um, third-party audited, in-person audited standards um, that really, those look and feel the way consumers hope uh, companies are approaching animal welfare, where mm-hmm. they're taking into account the animal's entire life, and someone outside that company is checking on those animals. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's not something people are aware of, and when they learn that the government's not involved and that nobody is responsible for how these animals are living, they're pretty shocked. So we just keep, keep raising that um, call. It's, That's right. It's really important. Well, I mean, we, you know, as you point out, and I had, uh, I had Leah Garces on the other day talking about, you know, the, the, the movement in cage-free for laying hens and that that has gone just in leaps and bounds over the last couple of years even. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Europeans started phasing out those cages, you know, quite some time ago. Um, and American companies have been very slow to follow, but they are. And I think that other improvements in animal welfare are, are, are happening incrementally. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm loath to, um, to beat up too much on the meat industry because as I've said many times in this program, we asked for cheap meat and we got cheap meat and now we're pissed because we don't like the way they do it. But do we want to pay more? You know, it's like, are you going to pony up, folks? Because that's what's going to take, right? I mean, people have to accept that these companies are not in the business of charity, and there's a very short margin on production of animal protein. Yeah, and, it really and, comes down to demand. They've got to hear it from consumers yeah. that they care. And people have to, they have to buy their with their conscience. And so if that means that you eat meat a few less times a week, then that's what you do. And you just spend a little more on it. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the easiest decision to make if you're in a low income situation or something like that, but it's, it's not impossible either. So um, we're almost running out of time here, but I want to ask you guys, Robert, in a, just in a quick moment, can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of current legislation that protects animal welfare on farm? I mean, do you feel like it's adequate, the protections? Because it, is, it, is it, I mean, I think the problem is it's not strictly enforced. Would you say that it's not strictly enforced or would you say that the laws themselves are, are inadequate to protect farm animals? Well, there's, there, the laws are really lacking. As, as Daisy just said, there's very mm-hmm. little protection except... Uh, in the slaughter process and uh, in, in transport. Uh, now, I should say that, that in general, farm animals are covered by, by you know, animal cruelty laws. Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. But they're all, almost all the states, while they do have anti-cruelty laws, they, they also almost all have an, an exemption for common agricultural practices. So um, while it's true, you know, you, you could still be prosecuted for, you know, intentional cruelty, you know, kicking, beating, you know, farm animals, mm-hmm. things like that. A lot of the a lot of the things that are that farm animals experience or are or, or that are done to them and Dave may be able to give you more specifics, but you know these things are are okay because it's a common agricultural practice, whether it's say de beaking of a you know a bird mm-hmm. or you know tail docking situations. Yeah. You know, so these these are situations which 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 would constitute cruelty if you did them to other animals. 
uh, but because it's it's uh, it's part of the food production, it's exempted from the from the anti cruelty law. So right. there there really are, is very you know little little protection. Uh, wow. Uh, for for farm animals. Um, what what when you guys advocate for you know I guess Daisy maybe this is your question and then we have to wrap it up unfortunately um, but do you, how much do you guys get to work with legislators uh, or you know do you go to Congress and lobby like the you know, like the meat companies do I mean what's your how, how do you deal with um, trying to impact legislation besides raising consumer awareness do you have direct engagement with legislators. Yeah, we have a really strong, wonderful team in D.C. that um, works with legislators on a federal level. Um, And then we have state directors that go out across the country and um, also work to oppose the laws that might endanger farm animals and work uh, to pass laws that will strengthen animal protection, Um, you know, whether that's a ban on the use of cages, um, as we're working right now in in Massachusetts, that's actually a ballot initiative, so we're working with citizens in that case, but... Um, You know, we've seen about 10 states pass different bans of of caging um, practices uh, or, you know, a tail docking type of law. Mm -hmm. Um, Wherever we can, we're we're on the ground and we're working with lawmakers. And we generally find that, you know, we have allies because because they care as as individuals and because they know that their constituents really care about animals. It's um, Mm -hmm. often a winning um, proposal for them. Uh, You know, it just depends who who they're really representing. Well, that's right. I mean... Is it is it a legislator from say North Carolina who's firmly in the pocket of Tyson or you know Smithfield or is it you know just a guy like I don't know Tim Ryan in Ohio who's like interested? I mean that is the question. It's like how much you know it's this is when somebody like Food Policy Action. I'm sure you guys work with them as well, mm-hmm. but where you go on their website and you can look to see you know who has voted for what. Um, in what you know, and what issues uh, concerning food and and the production of food, and and it's it's a very telling um, website. If you haven't looked at it, I, I strongly recommend yeah. it. You guys should definitely be hooked up with them if you aren't. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. we should. We unfortunately have to wrap it up. So um, promote your cause. Tell me, you know, tell people how they can learn more about this North Carolina ag gag suit. Um, sure. And you know, is, if there's anything consumers can do to push it along, let them know that too. Yeah, I mean, the best place uh, to go is ASPCA.org backslash open the barns. Um, uh-huh. Open the barns because that's what we really want to see here. We want transparency in our food system. And from that site, you can sign a petition against these bills, which will sign you up to learn if they come to your state uh-huh. uh, or if we need any help with a, you know, a bill of any kind around farm animals in your state, but particularly AGAG. And you can also find a map um, and a list of the existing uh, laws that are on the books and any, any state that's introduced a bill so you can see where your state stands on this issue and, and join us in fighting for um, protecting farm animals and freedom of speech and safe food and, and just a better farming system overall. Sounds great. Thank you both so much for joining me today and thank you to my sponsor and to my excellent engineer Dave, our new studio manager and um, I'll see you next week folks. Have a great week and thanks for listening today. Adios. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.